Welcome to another episode of the History of Networking at the Network Collective. Today, we are talking to Paul Vixie, the guy with all the radios behind him. There's a history behind that, too, I'm certain, who played a large role in the development of the Bind toolset and the deployment of the domain name system. Uh, last time we were on the show, we actually talked to Paul Manafort about, if I said that right, about the origin of DNS. So, um, he brought us up to speed on the origin of DNS and how it came about and why it goes from the left or why it goes from the right to the left, which is pretty interesting. It's all about autocomplete. So, Paul, why don't you tell us about the origin of Bind and how DNS spread throughout the internet and uh, why Lisp is not a replacement for DNS? No, <laughs> we don't have to do that one. <laughs> sure. So um, the internet looks like it may have been planned. And if you read certain histories, uh, you're gonna you know, hear people talk about how the Department of Defense had this great idea or the US government or somebody somewhere. That's not actually how it happened. Um, you know, it was the late 60s, early 70s. The technology that made this possible had started to come into existence. And the culture was very much uh, the freewheeling 60s. It's uh, not exactly free love, but uh, certainly free data or free interchange of ideas. So um, the, uh, the, the plan originally was let's just connect everything to everything. Uh, and eventually they realized that things had to have human readable names. Right. Uh, the anal analogy would be the phone company or the phone telephone system where everything has uh, some kind of a 10 digit number attached to it. Uh, but people were not going to remember those. They weren't going to write those down. And so they needed names. Now, uh, in, let's say, the late 70s, early 80s, when this was really taken off, uh, you could you could imagine uh, somebody sitting in a room with a $10 million computer that's the only one on campus or the only one in the company saying, okay, uh, there's probably a couple of hundred computers like this and we need to get them all connected to each other. And if that's all you've got, then the total number of names is small. You could almost write them on the back of a business card, but certainly they would fit on a sheet of paper. Uh, and you could distribute it by, I don't know, faxing that sheet of paper around or emailing it to somebody. Um, Sounds like and, an original host file. Yes, <laughs> it was. And so... Uh, the, you keep it to the back of your keyboard, too. That's, that's right. Right right next to your password. Just so. Um, so, obviously, that, that thinking did not uh, take into account the miniaturization of electronics and the fact that all of us we're going to have smartphones, each one of which has more transistors and power in it than all the computers on Earth had in 1979, if you combine them. Um, and that uh, we were going to have billions of people using this and a lot more names than you could possibly distribute as a sheet of paper or as even a, a whole ream of paper. So that's where DNS came from. It was just a way to allow the Internet to scale beyond its uh, supercomputer beginnings. Um, so the first implementation of this was done by Makapetris himself. Uh, and it was, I think, not in the Lisp. I think it might have been Pascal. Uh, but it was on one of those great big computers. Um, so the people at Berkeley... You mean somebody really wrote 
a non like educational application in Pascal. Oh yeah. I, I mean, CS, my first programming class was <laughs> Pascal and it was like, you're just going to use this language to learn how to program and then move on to a real one. Well, the real ones turned out to be uh, faster, but less safe. And so, uh, you know, when Pascal got uh, turned away at the door because it wasn't fast enough, it was also because people, it wasn't loose enough. Um, Anyway, the, the people at Berkeley got a contract to implement this whole internet thing on the VAX, which was a very affordable mini computer that day. Um, and they wrote this, uh, this whole system and the sockets, the, the TCP IP, they, they did all of that, which is more or less the actual common ancestor of all of the internet software that we have today. In other words, the earlier Pascal stuff just got, you know, printed out and stuck in a drawer somewhere, whereas the Berkeley stuff kept going. A lot of the Linux kernel is, uh, has got heavily influenced from the Berkeley work in the, the mid eighties. So, um, so they had a name server. They built a name server. And the problem is that the C programming language is very fast and very loose and uh, allows you to do all kinds of things that you didn't mean to. Um, and the code was just as buggy as you can imagine code being. Uh, like you can't believe they actually put that on a tape and sent it anywhere, but they did because it was better than nothing and nothing was the alternative. So that's where I come in. Uh, I worked at the company that made Vaxis and we had an internet gateway. We were digital equipment corporations, so-called DEC. Uh, and I ran the internet gateway that connected that 130,000 employee company to the rest of the then academic internet. Uh, the commercial internet wasn't born until the mid nineties. What year uh, was this? 88. Okay. And, um, so our software that digital was selling was based on the Berkeley Unix. And so we had a copy of their name server in our product uh, and it was really horrible. And there were all kinds of customers complaining about how it would abort uh, instead of doing something intelligent or it would give uh, the wrong error message or, you know, it was just, it was, it was really hokey. Um, but there was a team of people on the East coast of deck that was responsible for making customers happy. I was on the West coast of deck and uh, they didn't let me talk to customers much, but I was one. I was using our own software to connect this company to that internet. And the name server was making me crazy by doing all the wrong things. And so I started fixing it. Um, I couldn't fix the one deck was shipping to customers, but I could fix the one from Berkeley. And uh, pretty soon word got out, hey, Vixie's working on Bind. And everybody would ask, well, can I have a copy? And uh, that was the beginning of uh, interesting Interesting road, interesting path I have followed from 1988 until now that uh, all started from me trying to fix the bugs that were hurting me in my work and later led to uh, the rest of the story that uh, you haven't asked for yet. Can, uh, well, I was going to go ahead. I just uh, bind, you know, I, I mean, I had the original O'Reilly DNS and bind book, but bind is not as familiar an acronym for, for folks who may not have heard that before. Can you help unpack what that is just a little bit and how it relates to DNS? I'm happy to do it, um, but it's terminally obscure. So you may wish you hadn't asked. <laughs> okay. So um, the thing that Berkeley is known for now, their logo is a little picture of a devil which is called a demon. Um, and they spell it the old, uh, old English way, D-A-E-M-O-N. 
Um, and so when people hear that uh, Bind is the Berkeley Internet name demon, they say, oh, that makes total sense because it is a demon in the sense of Berkeley where it's, it's running in the background. It doesn't, it's not connected to anybody's workstation. Uh, but that's not what it means. It's the Berkeley Internet name domain. And the people who named it that were math geeks. And it turns out that what domain means to us on the Internet is only dimly related to what domain actually means in mathematics. And um, sure enough, Maka Petrus, the inventor of all of this, who I guess you had on recently, uh, was also a bit of a math and physics geek. And uh, he called it the domain name system because it fit the mathematical properties of that word in that field. And so the Berkeley people were really trying to keep faith with that. Uh, so it is a domain in the sense that it contains other things. I've talked to the, uh, the original authors of Bind who were grad, undergrads at the time this was being done. And they said, yeah, it's a domain because it included some utilities, some libraries, and a server, which was also called a daemon, not a domain. So anyway, it's the Berkeley Internet name domain. And now you wish you hadn't asked. That is exactly the kind of obscure information we love here, <laughs> just so you know. <laughs> All right, go ahead, Russ. I'm done. No, no, no. It, it's fine. I was just going to say, you just uploaded it to GitHub and then it was done, right? Um, yeah, GitHub wasn't going to come out for another 20 years. So, uh, no, what we did is uh, there was a, 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 a you think of it as a geek's version of Facebook that was text only. It was called Usenet. And uh, that was the way that the community kept in contact with each other. And uh, so whenever you want to do something that you're perhaps going to share with a lot of people, you would just post it to Usenet. And uh, indeed, I would periodically post the, uh, a patch. You know, here is a little program, programmatic diff that if you feed it into your patch program, you can take the source code you had and make the modifications to it that will correspond to the modifications I've made here. So it started as me shipping patches. Uh, and of course, I also shipped full software kits, but most people did not have an internet connection that was fast enough to fetch that. You know, we're talking about the days of uh, where even a 9600 baud modem would seem fast. So uh, really the, uh, the diffs is uh, what made Bind popular in the early days. And eventually diffs went away. And I, I would guess that today's system administrator wouldn't know what to do with a patch if I sent them one. Um, but so, so today it's all done with tar files and zip files because everybody's got multi-megabit uh, or even multi-gigabit uh, internet connections so they can fetch the whole thing, not just the part that changed. Yeah. Yeah, interesting. Yeah. So, I, yeah, I remember Usenet. Actually, I had a Usenet account and I used it a good bit in the old days. Um, I remember when Cisco Online was still a BBS system, by the way. Oh, man. Okay. <laughs> That's going back a ways. <laughs> we, but, called it, we called it CCO. In every era, you know, people use what they have. Uh, yeah, yeah. Sure. Oh, I, sure. I got a. I got to say, there was a delicious ham radio feel to all of this in the early days because uh, everybody kind of built their own thing. And the, the fact that they could talk to each other at all was usually a miracle. And uh, you're constantly meeting new people who were fellow travelers from some other part of the industry or some other part of the world. Uh, and that was great. I, I loved that. Uh, the the pre-commercial days of all of this were a very special time. Yeah, really cool. So... Go ahead, Donald. So what was your biggest challenge in, in, in modifying the, the code? 
Um, so I would say that uh, I did not appreciate the complexity of the code when I first started working on it. Um, it, uh, it struck me that I could isolate certain parts that were obviously wrong and then fix those. But inevitably, if you start tinkering with a complex system in that way, you end up fixing what's called a leaning bug, which is, yes, it was broken, but there are other parts of the program that depended on it being broken in that way, and nobody knew that. It's not in the comments. And so uh, pretty often I would pull on a thread and end up with a sweater in my hand and you know pieces of a sweater in my hand instead of just getting the thread out of the way. Uh, and the C programming language at that time was even more remarkably dangerous than it is today. Uh, we didn't have function prototypes uh, until ANSI C came later. And so that meant you could have a function that expected seven arguments and pass it six or eight and nobody would know except your program wouldn't work. And uh, it just, it took a long time for me to understand uh, both how bad the environment was and what DNS was. You know, I probably worked on the code for two years before I even knew what an internet RFC document was, let alone read the one that described what this code was supposed to be doing, because the code itself was just so bad that it didn't matter what the protocol was. We had to, uh, we had to get the code to be better. Gives new meaning to rough consensus and running code, doesn't it? Yes. <laughs> the rough consensus is make the code work, and then we'll all agree that that's the right way to do it. <laughs> Isn't that normal? Like I mean, that's what we do. Yeah, it is pretty much. <laughs> well, so there, there's a dark side to all of this, which is uh, I was the only guy working on it because DNS was really not sexy in those days. It has become a big business for a lot of people. So everybody wants to be a DNS guy or gal now. But uh, back then it was like, hey, Paul's willing to touch it. Uh, let's not joggle his elbow. And what that meant is that sometimes I would do the wrong thing and I would actually, because I had it like a 99.5% market share, uh, whatever I did, right or wrong, became the protocol that other implementers, however few there were, had to be compatible with. And, uh, you know, when I discovered those, I would, you know, add an option that would say uh, in the config file to say, all right, uh, there's an option now for doing it the wrong way or the right way. And the default right now is going to be to do it the wrong way because that's what everybody's compatible with. But we need everybody to change. And, and when they do, this is going to break. And then you need to change uh, what your config file says. And then eventually we would change the default to be doing it the right way and become incompatible with my own prior mistakes. So Shades of, shades of Ecclesiastes, Donald. We're living through that today with free range routing. I, that's easy to believe. Um, but again, it, it's not a position that I abused other than by being a little bit ignorant. Uh, certainly somebody else in my position who wanted to influence the development of all of this could have uh, gone to town, you know, given the extraordinary market influence that I had at that time. So you started distributing stuff on disks. So how did we get from that point to where we actually had root servers? I mean, you said there was a part we hadn't asked you about yet. So obviously you're running DNS servers and mainframes or well, what we would call today mainframes, I guess. Back then they, I guess they weren't called mainframes, right? They were just called computers. That was just what they were. Main computer and, was the name because they were smaller than mainframes, but yes. Right. So how did it get to the point where people actually started running this stuff and using it and relying on it? Or is there, are there steps in there I'm missing someplace? There probably are. 
So the formal launch of DNS uh, was sometime around 87, because um, we, uh, we had to migrate away from the host file. And so people started saying, all right, I've registered this, these domains. And uh, for now, I'm only going to have a small number of them. And I'm going to put the names I plan to use in DNS into the host file so that I could start using those names before anybody is using the DNS protocol. And then once we've you know, got the new names fairly well distributed, then we will actually switch over to start looking them up in DNS instead of looking them up in the host file. Uh, and that, that work was largely complete by the time I came to digital equipment in 1988 and started actually sort of understanding and caring about all this. Um, but uh, really it wasn't until the commercialization and privatization of the internet in the 1995 timeframe which was after we had seen the Mosaic web browser come out and uh, you know, it was kind of after ANS had taken over the old NSF backbone. And uh, it, when it got to the point that you could buy uh, internet capable software from somebody commercially and you didn't need the source code anymore, then you were gonna get a copy of my software that way. Uh, and when it got to the point that you were able to buy an internet connection from somebody, I guess we started to call them ISPs, uh, clearly named by engineers for functional is what, what it does, named, named after its function. Um, and um, you would just get DNS service from them. And so uh, when we commercialized and privatized, that is when this all became quite ubiquitous. But I will say that uh, as early as 1988, uh, putting something in the host file was no longer a reliable way to make yourself reachable. So uh, DNS was effectively deployed by the uh, 88 timeframe. So, so when you talk about the host file, uh, there are people probably listening to this who aren't even familiar with host files. Would you say that's correct, Yvonne? I would say hallelujah if that's the case. <laughs> <laughs> well, okay, so the, the, that is, again, there's a story behind everything. Uh, we have host files. All of us who run either a Windows or a Mac or an Android or an iOS uh, have got a host file, but it is not the host file I'm talking about. That is, uh, the, the host file that we all have is the one that was invented by Berkeley back in their version of the TCP IP stack. Uh, and so if you wanted, let's say, to have a poor man's ad blocker, you could go, you could find some domain name that was used by an advertising service, and you could go add that to your host file right now on your Windows or Mac or whatever machine you have, uh, just to point that at the all zeros address, and that'll make DNS fail. It'll make not DNS, it'll make all lookups of that name fail. Um, and so we all still have that host file, but that's not the one that was being distributed in the mid 80s. One that was distributed then was, uh, would remind you very much of green bar paper and punch cards. Uh, it had a lot of colons and commas and it had some very subtle meanings to it. And there's an RFC, so it's RFC, I think 952 that describes it, that describes the most recent format. Uh, and it was an incredible uh, engineering miracle that it worked at all. Of course, what we all did with it, uh, would we, we would FTP it from what was then called the SRI NIC uh, once a week. And then we would run an aux script, AWK, which was like Perl, but earlier, uh, that would sort of convert it into the host file format of Berkeley Unix, which is what the whole world uses today. So I think it's really unlikely that you're ever, that this, this broadcast will be heard by somebody who saw the original host file. Um, uh, if they did, they're still having flashbacks. 
So when you say this host file, it was distributed and it was basically like a DNS, a set of DNS records that was distributed manually, but it wasn't standardized the same way, correct? It was standardized. And like you said, there were a lot of odd things about the way this was set up, um, which made it not exactly commutable to DNS records. A lot of it could not be converted to DNS records. That is true. Um, uh, but it actually was standardized the same way. What I talked about is the RFC request for comments documents. There was one for the host format, and then later on there was one for the DNS format. Um, and so they, they each came through what was then called the Network Working Group, which is now today called the uh, Internet Engineering Task Force, IETF. Uh, but basically, it's a bunch of geeks trying to reach consensus about something and then uh, trying to reach consensus that the document says what they all thought it should say. And then they would write software to see if they were, their software was interoperable. And if it was, then that was a de facto standard. And uh, that's, that's where the DNS came from. That's uh, more or less still how it evolves today. Uh, but the, the host file, again, it is described by an RFC, but um, really unless you had a TOPS 20 system or a TOPS 10 system, you know, one of the old, old deck mainframe style computers, uh, you didn't have software that could read it directly. You had to convert it to a format that your software could read. All right, so, th so the host file was actually not, it was built in a way that there were, pro not Perl scripts, but there were like scripts of some type that would like belt a bash or shell scripts that would then convert it to each host particular, like the way it wanted to read it for that particular host. That's right. But again, that's, that happened, uh, that was not the plan. The plan was we're going to push this out in a format that, whose uh, syntax everybody agrees on what it means, and then we're all going to write software that reads it. And there is software that will read the original host's file, but it's probably written in Pascal, and it probably only ran on a PDP-10. Okay. Wow, interesting. So, again, Pascal, Yvonne, that should make you happy. Yes, right, exactly. Flashbacks myself. <laughs> so, yes, so, um, I don't remember what else I was going to ask you about that, but so the ideal, because I do remember host files, uh, and this is like on old systems, but uh, not the type you're talking about, but on mainframes. Uh, we saw host files that were used that way, but they were used for internal stuff as an augmentation to DNS because we didn't want to run a DNS server, right? Because running a DNS server at that time, when I was at McGuire Air Force Base doing this initial type of work in network engineering that I was first doing, um, running a DNS server was really painful. It was very hard to do. And, you know, we didn't want to run one. So uh, we just ran these host files and passed them around, basically. Um, yes. Well, some of that still goes on because uh, a lot of companies and even a lot of houses have got names for things that they don't really want the internet to know about. But you know, they want to be able to reach, let's say, a printer that's on their home Wi-Fi uh, by name, but they do not want to make that name visible to the rest of the internet. So the augmentation by use of a local host file is still going on. Um, on the other hand, um, the earlier names didn't end in .com. .com was an invention that came along with DNS. Uh, so there were plenty of names out there that ended in .arpa, A-R-P-A. And uh, uh, yes. so .arpa still exists today, but it's only used for really obscure 
purposes, uh, which is to convert from an IP address back to a host name. Uh, so the, the yeah. other names, even sri-nic.arpa, were never put into the DNS. Uh, they, they, they tried to make a clean break from the old naming. Um, now, you mentioned that running a name server was hard and that people would rather not do it, and that was true, and it is true today, but for a different set of reasons. I would say that because of uh, all the improvements that have been made to Bind, and Bind now has many competitors, uh, running a name server is probably 100 times easier now than it was in the mid-'80s. On the other hand, right. the average capability of your system administration staff has dropped by a factor of 1,000. Uh, <laughs> people are far less capable. You're just not running into people who, if they had time and if they got angry enough, could actually rewrite that software. And yet their job in life is mounting tapes and doing backups and whatnot. That's all we had back in the 80s. That's not what we have today. Right now we have sysadmin as a vibrant profession that is full of people who still find running a name server to be pretty difficult on average. Uh, it's not, but that's, uh, I'm just saying the lived experience hasn't changed. The reason for it has. So, so Ivani's talking about you there. <laughs> hey. I was thinking, though, that now there are DNS servers integrated with, you know, Microsoft server tools and things like that. And it's just like part of how we do networking and nobody steps back and thinks about that. It used to be this thing that got created to solve a problem 20 years ago um, and it's been co-opted. Or extended, extended, maybe extended, extended is a better extended. word. Yes, extended. extended. Embraced and extended, but okay. <laughs> Embraced and extended, yes, yes, yeah. So um, talk to us about a little bit about maybe why the timers were set the way they were in default and things about that. I mean, what where some of these defaults came from and what were the challenges behind? Because I know when I was at VeriSign and VeriSign Labs, we actually experimented with setting all the caches to zero and it seemed to work really well. I mean, you know, there wasn't any particular reason why um, the DNS, the, the, the current model, should I say, the way recursives work today and as powerful as these machines are, there didn't seem to be a lot of reason to have a lot of the caching that we uh, seem to have built in uh, to the systems today. So there have been a couple of studies that show that result. There was a famous one in, I don't know, late 90s uh, done at MIT um, that said, you know, if you just treat everything as though the time to live was zero and you just go fetch it again every time you need it, uh, you know, this is the bandwidth from our university you know, touching the rest of the internet. If you don't do that, and then here it is when you do do that, it's not that much worse. Um, so it's easy on the recursive side to believe that you don't need a cache. Uh, let me just say though, that on the authority side, let's say that you're VeriSign running .com, and you're currently pushing out, let's say 40 gigabits a second of answers that relate to .com. Uh, if everybody in the world said, you know, this cache, I don't need this cache. I'm a recursive. I'm fetching. I'm, I'm not on the publish side. I'm on the consume side. And this cache is only hurting me, so I'm going to stop using it. If everybody did that, uh, I would challenge you to be able to buy enough bandwidth from anybody to be able to serve.com. Um, 
So yeah, that could be. Yeah, that could be. There. I mean, the the, the VeriSign servers are backed. I mean, the, the root servers. Now, of course, we're using Unicast now. Which do you know much about the history of how the Unicast or the Unicast came about? Because that was actually before my time at VeriSign. So I, I know that you know it was partially about DDoS, but you may know more about that than I do about how. I was involved uh, in some of the root name server work back when Anycast was first starting to get used, uh, and I, I got I always give credit to Emroot, which is uh, which was at that time run by the Wide Consortium. They had a couple of Emroot name servers in an internet exchange in um, somewhere in Tokyo, and uh, they had two internet exchanges in the same data center, um, so they had two different internet exchange fabrics to connect to. And uh, so they, they did what seemed reasonable to them. They made two copies of the Emroot server and they used one to attach to one internet exchange switch point and they used the other to talk to the other. And it didn't occur to them until later that they had invented Anycast uh, as a way to solve a reliability problem they had. Um, so I saw that I was running the Fruit name server because uh, it was my company, Internet Systems Consortium, that was responsible for that. Um, and uh, I saw that and I said, you know, that would work everywhere. And I put out the call and I, I just asked internet exchange operators around the world, if you can buy some equipment, I will fly in and set it up as a root name server, uh, as an Fruit server. And uh, then my team will then manage it. And then you'll have local uh, root name service for your uh, internet exchange customers. Uh, the first person to say yes to that was Juan Puente, who was running the Espinex server, which was in a uh, bank data center somewhere in uh, outer Madrid. Uh, and, you know, we, we went in, we did the thing, it all worked. Uh, and I remember uh, after, we, we did a few more. We did some uh, in Russia. It was a beautiful day for me as a child of the Cold War when we got one in Moscow. Um, I finally got a call from Vince Cerf who was uh, one of the two guys who we think of as the fathers of the internet. And uh, he was at that time the chairman of ICANN, which is an internet governance uh, collective. And he called me up and he said, Paul, I see that you're doing any gas with, uh, with, with root name servers. Uh, can you tell me sort of uh, who authorized that? Or, you know, cause he, <laughs> and you know, I didn't know Vint well at that time, but you know, I, I was talking to him on a cell phone from somewhere, I don't know where, and I said, Vint, John Postel is dead. We are a little bit short on supervision here. And, um, and he said, ah, okay. <laughs> so anyway, now all of the root name servers are anycasted as far as I know. Uh, and they all uh, choose a slightly different model. VeriSign, for example, buys transit service for every anycast uh, that they do for A and J. Um, and there are others like CRoot, where I help out now at Cogent Communications, who actually host all of their Anycast instances inside their own network. Uh, so each root op tries to be diverse in terms of taking a look at the problem. You know, we want to be transparent. We want to explain what we're doing so it's no, not a mystery. But we also want to have thought our way through the problem set so that we're not all subject to the same defect, if indeed there is some sort of defect. So uh, there's a lot of diversity in the approach, but uh, all of them are doing any cast of some kind now. And I think that's good. So, so you were there at the founding of ICN, is that correct? Or the founding of um, internet of the uh, internet name, INC or whatever it is? Internet 
software consortium is what I'm sorry, ISC, yeah. Were you there at the founding of that? I was the guy. You were the guy. So don't they still run a root server? Isn't that correct? Yes. They still and run they- fruit, although for a different reason. Uh, the reason that, uh, that we first got told, you know, or you know, the, allowed to run a root name server uh, was because John Postel knew that I was supporting bind and that I, if I was running it in the root name server context, it would be more likely that bind would be good at being a, a, a root name server. And it turned out he was right. Uh, as I inherited that code base uh, in 88, 89 timeframe, it couldn't serve the root. That was the one zone it couldn't serve because the root doesn't have a parent. The root is its own parent. Uh, and so there's just a bug in the code. And I fixed that. And Postel said, I want to make sure that never happens again. So please run a root name server. And we did that. Um, so the motivation now is totally different. It's just that ISC is an old, well-respected, reliable entity, right, uh, yeah. and they, you know, they, they don't even run all of their own instances. They've got some that are done in partnership with Cloudflare. Uh, so it's not really about supporting bind for root name service anymore. It's just uh, because we've always done it that way. I'll be yeah. to use the term old. Twenty years old. Twenty-five years old now. In internet terms, the Internet Consortium in 1994 was, uh, that's, that's pretty old. <laughs> so ISC is still around. Don't they also run .org? Aren't they TLD for .org? Is that correct? No, that must be a different company I'm thinking of. No, that's the, .org. .org is the public internet registry. It's a, ah, that's right. Yes, that's correct. A nonprofit that was set up just for that purpose. Yeah, um, right. So I bid for it. When I was running ISC, I bid for .org, but I didn't get it. Okay. All right. Which, see, you would have been wealthy today. Well, no. <laughs> ISC was a nonprofit. We had no shareholders. Yeah, right. and yeah. I don't know if you were aware that a nonprofit has audit uh, requirements that are similar to a publicly traded company, uh, and they're actually worse in some ways. Um, and so the idea that I could ever have gotten rich from anything ISC ever did uh, is not true. What would have happened if I'd tried is that I'd be in jail, not rich. <laughs> uh, on the other hand, I've, I wanted the .org revenue partly to prove that Bind could do that job, right? It was a market validator for us, and partly because it would have created a wonderful revenue stream for funding the development of Bind, which otherwise relies on a lot of donations, a lot of goodwill, and frankly, a lot of midnight engineering, Right. There, there's been a dozen times when I was running ISC that I met somebody in a parking lot at midnight with my truck in order to get routers um, because they were happy. That sounds rather nefarious. Uh, they were going to be reported lost, and, <laughs> but they couldn't get permission for me to have them, but they needed me to have them in order that the Internet continue to grow. And that kind of stuff shouldn't happen, right? ISC has better funding now. They've got... Uh, sort of a, a business team, and they sell a lot of support contracts for Bind, and they, uh, they they are much better funded now than during this disorganized period that I was running that company. Uh, but even so, they shouldn't have to scramble. And the people at uh, NLNet Labs that do Unbound and NSD, who are those are other open source implementations of the DNS protocol, shouldn't have to scramble. They should not have to wonder how they're going to pay the people that are writing the code that is then given away that then makes the internet go. That's, that's a, a weakness. So the .org contract looked like a, a solution to that for me. Ah, interesting. Interesting. So 
There's something else I was thinking around there. So Bind today is still available. And I have Bind running on my on my laptop. I use it for doing DNS, you know, like traces and stuff like that, figure things sure. out. So, I mean, it's still out there. It's still available. And are you still involved in ISC doing that work or no? Okay. You said you're working someplace else now. Not at all. Doing... After uh, something like 12 years, so I came back to ISC full time. I'd never been an employee, but... I got caught in the bankruptcies of 2001, 2002, and I was uh, briefly jobless. And I told the board, you know, I'd be willing to come work for ISC full time for a year, see if I can beef it up, get it out of its funding was. Twelve years later, I woke up and said, what am I still doing here? And it turns out it's a very <laughs> addictive job. Um, and so I immediately, upon waking up, I looked around. I said, you know, we've got this security company that we built inside of ISC that is very much capital constrained. And uh, so I, I founded a separate company with outside money called Farsight, where I work now. And then we did a management buyout. I just bought from my old company the assets it would take to start my next one. And that put a couple of million dollars in their pocket that they could then use to go do bind. And it gave me a running start on what is uh, currently a, a vibrant 40 person security company here in California. Now, oh, cool, interesting, good. Yeah. So, uh, I don't, do you have anything, Yvonne? I'm trying to think if there's anything other questions about, uh, and I, I'm sure Paul has other stories that he hasn't told us about the origin of the. the yeah, we're getting story. tight on time. I would love to talk about the security impl implications of DNS and how DNS has morphed into a um, really important part of our security infrastructure. Maybe, maybe that's a topic for another conversation, but I think that would be fascinating. Well, I would, in fact, love to continue the conversation in that direction because um, at ISC, uh, when, I, when I saw the writing on the wall and knew I'd be leaving, uh, I put a couple of things into Bind. You know, that's an abusive position in some ways, except I was giving it away to the world uh, because I care deeply about the security of the Internet. Right? The world is less safe because of the Internet, uh, and all of us who helped build it should feel bad. Um, and so I've come up with some ways that uh, the DNS can be used to secure other things, whereas most people in the DNS industry are worried about how to secure DNS itself. I'm, I've been using DNS as a, uh, a tool to fix other stuff, and I would love to have a chance to tell you what that is. It's a whole bunch of open source, uh, unencumbered technology that uh, is changing the world, but we're not going to have time to get to it today. Yeah, we should do that, Yvonne. We should bring Paul back on to talk about that. Yeah, make a note. On a regular, yeah, make a note. That's what Yvonne does. She takes notes. No, not really. <laughs> you know, every band of people needs a responsible adult. And I'm oh, oh, really? <laughs> That's how I've been classified? <laughs> responsible adult. You guys are in trouble if I am the responsible adult. <laughs> With your burning candles and your feet, your, your foot heater. That's right. It is cold here. <laughs> so, all right. Well, cool. Well, for now, I guess we'll just wrap up. Um, we're at like 38 minutes or whatever, and we'll get Paul back on to talk more about other stuff. And then maybe we can think of other things that Paul might want to talk about in the history of the Internet. I made some interesting notes here on the side while I was muted because I know how much Jordan loves my keyboard. Just this, you know, I just have to do this for Jordan. 
Let me just say that when I type. Uh, <laughs> See, he's going to love your keyboard, too. <laughs> uh, old style IBM high click keyboard. If I could get a louder one, I'd have it. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So I've become addicted to mechanical keys. So, you know, my keyboards are loud, but uh, all right, cool. So we'll wrap up for right now and uh, we'll catch you next time, Paul, on the next uh, network collective that we pull you on to, to talk about something or another. I'm sure we have lots of things we can talk about. That'd be huge. Thanks for inviting um, me. Yeah. Paul, is there any place anybody can reach you? Uh, Twitter, um, uh, website. I know you have LinkedIn. Well, there's, I, I'm on LinkedIn <laughs> and all the other things as Paul Vixie without a dot. Um, my website for uh, personal stuff is www.redbarn.org, R-E-D-B-A-R-N. And there is a red barn next to my house. That's why I chose the name. And um, uh, I guess I, my, my work URL is farsightsecurity.com if you're curious about what we do there. Okay, cool. And Donald, where can people find you other than free range routing? You can find me on Twitter at me, not you sharp. Okay. I didn't get that. Did you say that again slower? Okay. You can find me on Twitter at me, not you sharp. Okay. There you go. And Yvonne, we know where to find you. You're eSharp. I am eSharp.net and on uh, Twitter at Sharp Network. Cool. All right. Well, thanks. And we'll see you next time on History of Networking or Network Collective. Thanks, guys. Thanks a lot. Bye-bye.